You are listening to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 107, how we manage low back pain and sciatica. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 107, How We Manage Sciatica and Back Pain. My name is Dave Ellett, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob Evan. Hello, podcast friends and family. Awesome. So uh, today we want to talk about the management of patients with sciatica, but we're going to do this in quite a cool way. We're going to use a real life listener case history to help us explain things. So um, we actually had a lady reach out to us for a virtual appointment uh, after listening to the podcast for some time. She's agreed that we can share her case to use as an education tool and an example of what to expect from appointments and as a great way of showing how we decide what to do in the treatment room and how we justify different treatments when working with patients with low back pain and especially sciatica. Hopefully this will be relevant to those of you out there listening with, guess what, back pain and sciatica. Um, I do think it should be very useful. Awesome. Ready, Rob? I'm ready. Take it away. Let's do it, baby. Okay, so this is the history, guys. Bear with us. Hold on tight. Let's do this. A 48-year-old female with a three-month history of sciatica and associated lower back pain. Now, she had previously seen two different practitioners. Number one said to do specific exercises. We don't know what these exercises are yet. Uh, Told me to keep my back straight when lifting and keep my core braced when walking around. Number two said to take painkillers and to rest and that eventually I should get better with time. Not much could be done. Now, uh, she then mentions that both said a scan isn't necessary, even though uh, she requested one from both. So they're they're not conflicting in all their information. Uh, The listener goes on to say, I'm a bit confused by this conflicting advice and I don't know what to do. Okay, Rob, how do we tackle this case from from start to finish? Um, Where do we start? So I think whenever you see someone for back pain or sciatica, the first thing that they will do is is, an, is a is a really good history. So what that means is sitting down and taking the time to chat to you about what the problem is, how long it's been for, how long it's been there for, how affecting is it, or how much does it affect your life, how bothersome is it, how sensitive is it, and there's lots of questions which we can ask during that history, which will inform or kind of decide how we go about the treatment to start with. So I think the first thing people start with, um, especially I start with all the important things that we'll start with is firstly kind of how long it's been there because how you manage, you know, three days of back pain and sciatica will be very different to how you manage three years of low back pain and sciatica. Another thing to really kind of understand is um, you, the patient, your kind of thoughts, fears and beliefs and your understanding about what the problem is. Because if you're of the opinion that your back has slipped out of place and it needs realigning, compared to if you're of the, of the opinion that it's it's damaged and broken, it's never going to get better, both of those need a very different direction in kind of how we manage it. So that's kind of how we would, we would start. So why don't we jump into a couple of those, Dave, and look at how that would affect either of our kind of treatment plans. So I think to start with, if someone's got kind of an acute, really 
early onset of back pain. And by that, I mean, they've, they've had it a couple of days. It might, they might have, the classic history is someone's bent down to pick something up or they've lifted, lifted something in the gym or they've moved house and they've either had an acute episode where they've gone, ow, my back hurts, or they woke up the following morning after doing something and going, yeah, okay, now my back's a little bit sore and it's got progressively worse over kind of the next few days and hours. So that's what kind of we'd define as an acute episode of back pain. Is that, you agree with that one, Dave? Yeah, most people tend to fit into one of those two categories or, or around them at least. Um, uh, yeah, that, that slow, gradual onset over a couple of days. So, uh, realistically, you might have been ignoring it for a while, but the main symptoms tend to be uh, hitting that. Or of course, I lifted one big thing. I went to, yeah. to bend and bang, it got me. So then when we look at then how we manage you know, that, that acute compared to the chronic, again, for me, me personally... Depending on that acute episode, is this the first episode they've had? Is this multiple episodes? You know, this is this their seventh episode of acute low back pain in a year, or is this the first time they've ever kind of experienced it? If it's the seventh episode, then yes, likely something probably has to be addressed somewhere. Are they overtraining, overloading? Are they sleeping well enough? Are they just doing too much and their body can't quite handle it at the moment? And we need to kind of build up their tolerance to whatever they're doing. Or if it's their very first episode and it's three days and they don't really think anything serious is going on, they're not worried about it, they're not concerned, then yes, we can address that in a much more, yep, it will probably get better. It will probably be managed. It will probably calm down significantly in the next couple of weeks and give them a lot of reassurance and advice and if they're not too concerned about it and there's lots of tools that we as healthcare practitioners use um, and by tools I'm only things like questionnaires you know it's a very famous one called the start back that a lot of people would have probably done but not actually known they're completing it and what that does is tells us you know um, and what it actually does is tells people how tells the healthcare practitioner how likely is this patient to go on to develop longer term back pain and it's based on kind of people's thoughts and their fears and their expectations people who are very thought very fearful and very worried about their pain are often shown to have a longer term pain could if they're not bothered about it and they're not really worried about it so that's kind of how we differentiate it on those two matters if someone's had a bit more of a chronic issue then again we'll probably much more likely address something um, if they've had a longer term back pain it's not settling down they've tried lots of different things we'd look at what they've already tried what what helps them what doesn't help them and then kind of build them a bit of a plan kind of around that the same goes for their kind of beliefs and expectations you know and especially with regards to treatment you know if they believe that something needs to be done whether that's some manual therapy whether it's a manipulation whether it's whatever it is we can ask them why and a lot of my consultation will be about well, why do you think that needs to be done and i might put it in a nicer way than that but it will be kind of around <laughs> you know why do you think you need to have your back manipulated you know what are your beliefs around what that does and kind of exploring that a little bit better so that's kind of very early in the history i'll kind of ask those type of questions so that kind of opens up that branch a little bit and i guess then we kind of move on to um you know what what helps it what makes it better what makes it worse in terms of the pain i don't know about you dave is that you know similar questions how do you kind of go about ascertaining those type you know is, is there things that make it better things that make it worse Absolutely. Not only does it give us some clues about the origin or uh, the likely origin of what might be going on, um, it gives us a great insight when we're looking into creating movement drills or exercises, rehab, whatever you want to call it. When we're looking at trying to formalize some homework for you, if you tell us that getting up and walking really helps, 
hot damn, we're probably going to give you some walking drills or we're going to give you movement. If you tell us that uh, the only thing that relieves it is being seated or, or laying flat, we'll probably try and build some movements and some exercises around being seated or laying flat. Otherwise, it's not going to be congruent with how you're feeling and how you will feel better. This makes it quite tough because we, we've got those two conflicting pieces of advice earlier there, Rob. You know, one, one um, it doesn't say whether they're doctors or physios, chiros, osteos, whatever they are, but one, um, one MSK practitioner uh, said to do these exercises um, and the other one said just to rest. Now, both of them could be right, uh, depending on the um, uh, the chronicity, so how long it's been going on for, and of course, what alleviates her pain. Hmm. For me, if resting does help, I'd say, yeah, you're allowed to rest. But I never tell someone to stop moving. You know, we're not, we're not the bed rest days, are we? I don't think that's what they uh, said there, but just in case, you know, we've got to still bash yeah. these uh, these old things out yeah. of the woodwork. Yeah, I guess also we don't know what they mean by rest here. You know, rest could be just stop doing aggravating activities or they could have meant bed rest. I doubt, I think in these days, as you said, people aren't usually recommending bed rest or I hope people aren't recommending bed rest anymore. Even so, you know, if if someone's had a really acute episode of low back pain, we know that moving and exercise is generally going to be the best thing. But, you know, doing a you know significant rest for a very short period, you know, as long as we're getting back to moving, I don't really have a problem with that in the very, very short term. Um, you know, when it comes to rest. But when I talk about rest, it's often that I use that term relative rest. So, you know, if, if you know that driving is really, really painful or walking or you're running or something's really painful, that might just mean, okay, for now, we're just going to do some relative rest. So your walk becomes a run. Your driving has a bit more breaks in it. It's that aggravating activity. Can we just rest from doing it? If rugby is really, really sore for now, okay, can we do a slightly shorter training session? You know, and can we adapt it? It doesn't mean stopping completely, but can we adapt what you're doing and what does that do to the pain? If you notice that, well, I've just done two hours of rugby session and it's really fair at my sciatica, what happens if you go to 15 minutes of rugby, warm up, do the drills, don't do any contact? After that, is it a bit better? Because then you can then build your tolerance up around that. You can do 15 minutes. Then next week, can we do 20 minutes? Can we do 30 minutes? And just gradually start, you know, what we call graded exposure, gradually exposing you to those painful activities and then seeing how you respond. And sometimes it might flare up and then we know exactly, okay, we got to 40 minutes and it got a bit sore. Or you started doing contact and it got a little bit sore. Or these rolling around on the floor drills and it got a little bit sore. We can just then adapt it and say, okay, let's take that bit out for a bit. And this is that two-way conversation between us the healthcare practitioner and you you know to tell us it's not you know it's not a one-way street here it's totally adaptable that's it so when we ask you a what makes it bad but also your general levels of activity it's not to try and catch you out it's so we can understand what your relative rest point is like rob said are you uh, doing a two-hour rugby session or is your normal activity level going to get a cup of tea the two rest levels would be very different between those mm. patients. So we're not trying to catch you out here. It's not necessarily a, a health questionnaire in that yeah. we're trying to judge you. This is a health questionnaire because that will help us modulate your treatment plan. Yeah. What about kind of assessing for aggravating movements, relief, re relieving movements? How do you do that as part of your either your chat with the patient or kind of you know looking at them, as examining them? Well. A bit of both, actually. So uh, I'm rather lazy. I'll always ask them first before I do my work, uh, what aggravates your lower back? Um, often a, a patient will say this particular movement here, they'll bend, stretch or, or twist. Um, 
inadvertently uh, doing an orthopedic test, so a, a special um, uh, musculoskeletal test, which would normally be used by a practitioner to show what uh, structure or what area is aggravated. So if a patient says, oh, well, actually, when I bend backwards and twist, that was actually something I was going to get you to do anyway. So if you show me before I get there, it kind of gives me a helping hand. Uh, that's mm. a, a, a lazy um, practitioner inside there. Yeah. Um, well, and then to follow up with uh, orthopedic tests in that area. So, so bending, twisting, poking. Uh, the idea is essentially to find that structure that's, or narrow down those structures that are causing mm. you problems. And I think also for me, it's looking at where does it hurt when you do X, you know, and specifically, is it sciatica pain? You know, is that pain traveling down the leg when you bend over or is it just localized to the lower back? Does it change, you know? And you know, for me, I, I, I don't mind doing activities often when patients aren't too painful that are okay in the back, but when it's really triggering off the leg pain and sciatica, I generally will stay away from that movement. If there's a particular stretch exercise or something you're doing that's really triggering the leg pain, often I find that that's the one I'll calm down first over the one that's irritating the back pain. Um, and that's just my personal preference in, t in terms of that. I find that when someone's got really bad sciatica, often the sciatica is worse than anything else. So we try and calm down the worst bit first. Um, and you know that when that nerve's really, really irritated, it does go that whole way down the leg and it's miserable. You get a lot of like, you know, late onset symptoms. If you do something that's really aggravating that sciatica, it means you often, when that sciatica is bad, it's usually really bad at night as well. So people will be getting up and walking around at night because they can't sleep we know how important sleep is to recovery so you know we really don't want to, that sciatic nerve to be really really pissed off so trying to get that just to calm down initially whatever that might be is generally the approach i would take that so not only what aggravates it when it's aggravated where does it hurt most is, is a part of my assessment examination consultation whatever you want to call it uh, so there's a difference between a pain and the pain sometimes it's trying to find the pain that problem um at the same time as that there has to be a point as a practitioner where you can ease off where you can step back and say i'm not going to do my other four tests because everything's bloody painful let's see if we can get some movement through there sometimes over testing and over complicating things it can be rather simple within a couple of tests sometimes to know exactly what's going on Quite frankly, mm. most of us uh, practitioners who have walked behind you in the uh, into the treatment room, we've got a good idea of what's happening already after a brief history and some movements. Um, so to over-test can actually aggravate sometimes and means you can't then uh, do any treatments or movements and you end up having to wait for that to calm down. Um, so yeah, yeah certainly not, not poking it too much is a bit of an art form yeah. as well. And I think that also when someone's really, really sensitive, that's the term I use with patients when they're in this situation and, you know, you do some simple tests or sitting in the waiting room for a bit longer than you might have expected, you know, and that's enough to really, really piss it off. That tells me how that, you know, that's as, as shit as that is for you. It gives us some good information of how irritated that is. If it takes you 10 miles before the sciatica comes on, it's a lot harder to kind of assess that in the room it's just you telling us but if we know that you know it's really sensitive and simply bending over to one to take your shoes off or to put on a gown or whatever we might be doing it's really flaring up then we know that's then going to change our treatment plan in terms of we might start a little bit more gently when we might not push you into that pain quite as much the exercise might be a little bit different just to not 
you know, knowing that it's a little bit sensitive. You know, are we taking any painkillers when it's really, really sensitive? Some pharmacological intervention from the GP, you know, especially those those kind of what people might call neuropathic pain medication, nerve painkillers, lots of different terms for that. Um, you know, it could be beneficial from the GP. Obviously, that's a conversation for the GP or the pharmacist, but uh, there's um, some scope there to explore that if that nerve pain is really, really bad. So then obviously moving on to kind of that exercise-based stuff, we can go down the exercise line. I think that why don't we then go down the scan the scan line. With regards to kind of then the exercises, do you, with someone who's really sensitive to a particular position, say that's kind of arching backwards or bending forwards, how does that adapt then your kind of exercise plan? Do you get people to push into that? Do you get people not to push into it? Do you encourage them to do it? How do you adapt? Now, for me, <clears throat> again, it depends on how sensitive they are, so, uh, to use your, your vocab there, Rob. Um, most people, I would say, move up to the pain. So I don't tend to start off, especially in that very acute phase. So uh, like Rob said, essentially everything's pissed off. Um, I don't tend to say push through the pain at that point. I think you're in enough pain without half an hour of pain given on an A4 sheet by me. So what we would tend to do is say, go up to that pain, not through it. You know, we're not in that no pain, no gain phase. That's a bit of a myth, I'm afraid. Um, right now, whilst everything is inflamed, hot and angry, we'll move up to that point and then we back off. We're not looking to um, aggravate any further, but we do also want to make some progress. We do have to push up into that boundary point sometimes. Yeah, I think it's also... As well, we spoke earlier about that kind of their thoughts and their fears and their expectations or beliefs, whatever you want to call it. If someone is very fearful of a movement because it hurts, they've got that fear avoidance. And the classic one I know we've spoken about a thousand times on here is that bending over. And often because that bending over was a trigger sometimes for back pain, people can be quite understandably fearful of it. You know, if you sprained your ankle falling off a curb or twisting it running, it's normal that you're going to be a little bit more fearful the next time you kind of do it. So understanding why it hurts when you do it is a good part is a good part of it and it's not that anything is slipping and sliding out of place it's just that you know you're extra sensitive to that movement right now so if someone you know has a lot of fear and if we if we take the low hanging fruit i'm sorry to do it again but someone who's very fearful of bending forward and you know every time they bend down to put their shoes on every time they pick up their child off the floor it's triggering that pain it's a really acute movement they'll stop doing it so then they're often brace a bit more they get really tight they get very stiff they avoid that movement so it doesn't mean we have to then encourage it from day one you don't have to start bending over and touching your toes but we can start gradually progressively doing some of those movements within a realm that is comfortable as dave said kind of going up to that pain but not through it so if bending over and putting your shoes on is very sore can we dial it back a bit? What happens when we just sit down into a slump position? What happens when we lie on our back and bring your knees up towards your chest? Does that trigger quite as much? Or hopefully not, because that is also spinal flexion. It's the same movement as you bending forward to put your shoes on, but just at a lower intensity or a lower frequency. So then we can then use that as part of our kind of methodology when we're building up that rehab or that treatment plan kind of onto, onto the next phase. And then once you can do 
10 knees to chest and it's not quite sore, what happens when you do 15? What happens when you sit down slump 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, 20 times? What happens if you just reach down to your knees but not kind of down towards your feet? And we just gradually bring that up. And then, you know, as Dave knows I like to do, we can then bring in weighted exercise. We can do some seated deadlifts. We can start bringing in some other things just to gradually expose you to those movements. Because as we all know, the spine is meant to bend and move and twist. It's a normal movement. We just have to get better at doing it some other time. So while we're thinking about exercises, Rob, um, what, how do you assess someone's current exercise ability, if you like, or, or current exercise routine? Do you try and get everyone on the same type of exercises or do you you know, find out their, their level and then uh, adapt from there? Do you try and get everyone to the same level at the end? What's your go-to? So firstly... The most important exercise is the one that the patient actually does. You know, that's the, the, the key here. If we're someone hates going to the gym and we're telling them to go into the gym, it's probably not going to be a, you know, that successful. Do they love doing Pilates? Do they love hiking? What do you do? So that's kind of the first thing I'll start with is what do they actually want to do? Because then they're much more likely to actually do it, full stop. Um, Looking at someone's kind of tolerance, I think if we look at tolerance towards pain is a good place to start. You know, when someone's in a lot of pain, um, how much can we do before it really triggers it? If, again, take an easy example, if we're doing something like a lunge or we're doing something like a, you know, bending forward to your toe touch or kind of a standing extension, how many can we do before it flares it up? You know, if we do 10 backwards bends, does that trigger the sciatica a lot? What happens when we do five? So part of that assessment in the room is looking at your kind of tolerance, your pain levels, what helps it, what makes it worse, how far are you comfortable pushing it? Some people are happy to push into pain. Some people really want to stay out of it. So it's going to be very individual here. So when we're giving exercise and saying, let's do 10 of these with a view to doing 12 next week and 15 next week, there's a methodology in the madness. You know, sometimes I might, sometimes people might just do one squat and then see how it feels and leave it alone. And that's what I say to a lot of people is let's try this, leave it alone and see how it feels. Because as we know, the pain doesn't always come on straight away. It might trigger it a bit later. Can we then just start poking the bear slightly over the next coming days and weeks and then seeing how you respond, knowing that we can always take a step back. If we flare the pain up, this might sound horrible to say, but the worst that's going to happen often is it's going to be sore. We're not going to do any damage to it. And that's really key. Hurt doesn't equal harm here. So just because something is flared up, we take a bit of a backward step. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's been, it doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. It just means it might mean we've pushed it a little bit too far that day and it will change day to day. It'll be days when, you know, you might be able to do a lot of the exercise. It's totally manageable and there'll be days when it's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable and we can do a little bit less. So it's totally adaptable. If I give someone exercises and I say, let's do, you know, three sets of eight, that doesn't mean we have to every single time exercise do all of those repetitions. And I'll say that to patients. I'll say, this is these are your guidelines. We can go up a bit. We can go down a bit. We can take a day off if it's sore, as long as we're doing some other type of activity. But it's adaptable. You know, I don't want anyone there with a gum shield in grinding their teeth, thinking they have to do another eight reps when it's really, <laughs> really, really, really painful. That's that's not what because we're about. Because Rob told me to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then what about, so obviously this, you know, lady has had similar advice about scans um, from both of those kind of health healthcare practitioners. What dictates to you when a patient comes to you, whether you refer them for a scan and we're talking about MRI scans or x-rays here? Well, this is certainly something we've discussed before. I'm going to put it into two really basic camps. 
Camp number one is an easy one. Um, will it change the treatment that I'm going to administer or advice that we're going to give? We're going to call this treatment. And for me, that's going to encompass all advice and um, exercise and any hands-on or, or anything else. We're going to call that all treatment. So will it change or alter the trajectory or style or, and will it influence that treatment that we're going to give? So would there be something that we're um, uh, essentially searching for that's going to alter that where we could do harm or damage if we're doing the wrong thing? Secondarily, we're looking for red flags. So anything underneath the surface that's going on that uh, we are... Uh, do you know what? Go back and listen to the Red Flags episode. That's going to be the best way. Um, and I can suggest that's a whole podcast in itself. So essentially anything nasty we think might be going on underneath the surface, we're going to take a deeper look. Those would be my, my two main easiest camps to keep this from turning into a three-hour podcast about um, Red Flags again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very similar with me. I think it's the, is it going to change exactly said what we're going to do? Because, you know, as we know, a lot of the changes which people have on scans are normal. You know, the whether it's degenerative disc disease, crumbling spine, arthritis, all these things that have these horrible terms, they are largely normal. That doesn't mean the back can't get sore sometimes or even really bloody painful, but they're largely normal. Are these findings that we're having on a scan relevant to what this patient is presenting with. You know, if you've had, you know, no back pain ever and you've then just had an x-ray and it's turned out you've that someone's told you've got severe degenerative disc disease, you've never had any pain before five days ago and it's just flared up. This didn't start because this just kicked off yesterday and your spine just started wearing away. It's This has been a gradual process over years and something you've done has overloaded that spine and it's become sore and painful. Um, so focusing on that kind of what we call structural pathology can have negative impacts. If we're of the belief that our spine is crumbling and we have severe degenerative disc disease, we're much more likely to then go down the line of having a potential surgical intervention or you know something which we might, and obviously some people will do, we might not need in, in, in some of these cases. So it opens up the possibility, you know, it opens up a bit of a can of worms sometimes. Now, some people find scans reassuring. Uh, generally, people don't find scans reassuring, but some people do, um, uh, you know, and those are rare instances. And my kind of make the decision around, you know, is this person really going to find the scan reassuring? Sometimes people will, uh, the problem now is people can self-refer for scans and you can book your own scan at, a, at an imaging clinic. And I kind of make the decision around, well, if, if I refer that patient for a scan, I'm here to tell them what to expect beforehand, tell them about those imaging findings being normal, for example, in a lot of cases, and then translate the report afterwards. If, you know, Mrs. Smith just goes for a scan, doesn't have someone there to you know, hold her hand through it or guide her through the process, the implications can be larger. You know, if she then just books a consult with a surgeon and said, I've had back pain and I've got a crumbling spine, what can you do? You know, no one's there to sometimes explain the report correctly or I say correctly, obviously surgeons can explain the report well, but, you know, kind of give her other options or alternative in some cases. So it's a bit of a can of worms sometimes. Obviously, as I said, the other thing being red flags, and that's part of our history. You know, a lot of the questions that we ask in our history are around red flags, you know, and the first question is, is this something that we can treat or do we, does this person need to be somewhere else? Does that need to be A&E? Does it need to be a rheumatologist? Does it need to be an orthopedic surgeon? Does it need to be back to the GP? And that's our goal with anyone that you see for back pain is, is this person safe to be here right now? That's what's drilled into us from day one when we're learning about this stuff is those red flag questions. And these are all the questions which you would have been asked around you know, night pain and weight loss and histories of other medical conditions or 
you know, the, the more sensitive questions around erectile dysfunction, bowel and bladder function, all those ones, those are ones which, as we said, get drilled in. And hopefully people should be shit hot at asking all of those questions <laughs> with you when you have a have have a bit of a, a problem. So that's kind of my advice with scans. With someone with a three-month history of um, back pain and sciatica, no other red flags, I'm very unlikely to send them for a scan, I think, in the vast, vast majority of cases. But obviously, some things can change with patients. So with you, Dave, if someone... What would change with a patient that would mean that you might consider a scan outside of red flags? <clears throat> outside of red flags. So for me, it would be um, a lack of response or a difference in response that I was expecting to treatment. Again, treatment being hands-on therapy, exercise, uh, advice, etc. Um, <clears throat> so it would be a under or over, um, actually no, it's never over. If they, can't, if they get better really bloody quickly, they definitely don't need a scan, but an under-improvement or a, a mod um, uh, a molding of treatment. So I've taken a lot of antihistamines today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, an evolving of symptoms or a changing of symptoms, that's what I'm after, um, or a real lack of improvement. And I'm thinking this isn't doing what it should do if it is some relatively simplistic pain. If it is mechanical, as I was previously thinking, either the symptoms have changed and they've started to uh, to mold into something different or it's just not responding and I've whacked, I've thrown you know, everything at it, then maybe something else going on through there. Yeah. And then... Um, but it's certainly not a first port of call, I must say, yes. Yeah, no. I guess the other thing as well is around kind of neurological symptoms, um, if they are changing or, or changing or getting worse or the severe neurological symptoms. If someone's got, you know, bilateral leg pain down both legs, if someone has... Um, a lot of weakness on one side, a lot of numbness, you know, kind of, and that's progressing, what we call, you know, progressive neurological deficit, then that opens up the doors. And again, these things by themselves are, it doesn't mean we send people for a scan, but when these things are changing in collaboration with your history, collaboration with other things you've said, a collaboration with, you know, if you've tried lots of things and it's not getting any better, then yeah, it opens up that door to considering these possibilities. And this should be a two-way conversation. So when someone's sending you for a scan, or, or not sending for a scan, having that question around why not, you know, what would indicate you that I need a scan? What do I do if these things change? And we call that safety netting with patients. You know, so I'd say that's with, a, with almost everyone that comes through the door is the this is what we do if things are changing. You know, obviously this is your presentation now. If you get any of these symptoms, then you let me know. You let your GP know. You know, in some cases, if these things happen, you go to A&E with things like Cordoquina. And so the patients have that you know, safety net of they know what to do if these things change because, you know, we aren't static people. Things evolve over time. Yeah, yeah, too right. Anyone who, um, anyone with any kind of ridiculous pain, so sciatic uh, uh, pain will immediately have the um, uh, the CES, the, the quarter Aquinas syndrome uh, and A&E chat from us just in case it was to worsen at any point during their tenure. Um, and more importantly, at any point in the future as well, I think we should have these conversations with even people without back pain in case it was to ever happen in the future. We could catch a hell of a lot more important cases that way. Yeah, perfect. I think as well, the, the conversation about scans is one I'm having more and more, possibly because, as you mentioned, Rob, it's, a, uh, it's achievable to just go and have a, a self-paid, self-referred MRI these days. You know, that, that's quite an easy thing. They're, they're readily available. Um, 
And so it's, I'm actually having that conversation uh, more and more with people when they say, look, should I go and get a scan? What, what if I go and get one tonight? Is that going to help me in my treatment? Um, uh, and so actually having that conversation people with people more and more early on, by the way, we don't need to scan for this because this is this has become uh, quite a feature of treatment recently. Like I said, I think people are just more aware of scans being out there and being available via private means. Um, <clears throat> do you find that rather people asking for it more and more, or trying to self refer and nick off down the road for a, a cheap MRI? Yeah, massively. And the, you know, those imaging centres, you know, which advertise in the newspaper and fly through people's door of you know next day MRIs, get your MRI today, self-refer today. And yeah, I think that generally that's not good in a lot of cases. You know, these are are complex issues that, you know, you wouldn't self-refer for a blood test generally and, and interpret your own results because, you know, nine times out of people aren't trained to do so. Um, I guess the next question then kind of brings us to hands-on treatment, manual therapy, whatever you want to call it. And that's another not even controversial topic, but you know, a topic that we'll discuss with patients. I think that Dave and I being in private practice, there will be a kind of an expectation or a bias towards having some hands-on therapy when people come to see us to some degree. And sometimes that can drive types of treatment. You know, people come to us with TikTok videos of saying, oh, can you do this to me? Or, you know, my last guy did this and it always benefited. So one thing I will always kind of talk about when it comes to, you know, are you going to benefit from hands-on therapy or what are your expectations from it? You know, do you, if someone is thinking that we need their spine realigned or we need their knots rubbed out or those type of thing, then, and, and why that needs to help, then obviously they might have a misunderstanding about where pain is coming from. And, you know, why they're in pain right now so that opens up the door to having that conversation and then you know we know that people's expectations when it comes to treatment and what they expect you know will benefit them getting better so someone's really expecting and wanting something and you deny it straight away obviously there's gonna be cases when things aren't appropriate but um and you deny it straight away then it can you know put people off a bit it can then send them out somewhere else to it, get the treatment that they might want and that person might not have the same ethical or kind of evidence-based guidelines which or treatment ethics that we have. So that can kind of evolve it a bit. So when someone comes to me and they say something like, oh, I've been seeing a chiropractor for 30 years and he's always done this thing to my lower back, you know, he's cracked my lower back and it's always felt better afterwards. It would be foolish of me sometimes to just say, oh no, it doesn't work like that. There's no evidence for it. You know, it doesn't really help in, in low back pain in a lot of cases because that patient's experience is, well, it's always helped my low back pain. So just writing him off can make him feel like he's he's wrong or incorrect and that's not what we're trying to do. But what I will use is, if it's appropriate, use something like a manual therapy technique, whether that's a manipulation, whether it's massage, whether it's mobilization. If A, they think it's going to help them, B, I think it's going to help them and um, and, and there's obviously no contraindications to doing it. So I might do something like that in order to, you know, help build some of that rapport with the patient, help them feel a bit better because we know manual therapy works like a bit of a mechanical painkiller. It helps reduce pain in some people, which is fantastic. Um, but then we can use that as an opportunity to get people moving a bit more. You know, if someone, if we do some manual therapy and they get 24 hours a week of relief, that's fantastic. They can walk more, they can lift more, they can do more, they can play with their children. And the benefits of that are fantastic. Manual therapy doesn't fix your pain. You know, no one would expect a, a painkiller, paracetamol to fix your back problem exactly the same thing goes for manual therapy it helps modulate the pain it helps manage the pain 
allowing you to do a little bit more exactly the same way a painkiller does you know i think people coming with the expectations of being fixed and then walk out the door you know that means we need to have a little bit deeper conversation sometimes with the, with these patients absolutely like i said it, it's tough when someone's benefited from it in in the past but i mean you're right if it's safe to do so um I will adjust, like I said, in order to create rapport, in order to alleviate, uh, even if it's a temporary like, window of or pain relief, as we described before. I mean, that is one of the, the great things, although it might not be healing in the way that we thought it was once, it still does feel pretty damn good if done right. Um, and it's okay to have stuff that feels good sometimes, especially if you're, you're in a hell of a lot of pain. That can be uh, an alleviating thing or at least a, a reassuring thing in itself. Um, <clears throat> it's okay to feel nice sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah and i think that yeah that's the other thing is exactly as you said that it's okay to feel it's okay to feel nice it's reassuring if someone's been in pain for a while and you can give them a window of opportunity to feel a bit better then that is sometimes a oh a relief of it can get better um and it's not i'm not just stuck in this pain cycle when, when we've been in pain for a long time or even i say even a long time even pain for a few weeks a few days it can feel like it's never going to end so it's having a bit of relief a bit of respite from pain it can be really beneficial mentally as well to be in a good place so i think that kind of sums up a lot of our kind of treatment approaches we've kind of covered what we're looking for in histories how that's going to divert or change our exercises when we assess for manual therapy why we send for scans why we don't send for scans so hopefully that have cleared up some beliefs around you know why your certain practitioner is doing x y or z you know there is a as i said earlier a method in the madness when it comes to a lot of these you know treatment modalities why someone's not particularly laying hands on you or why they're doing more manual therapy or less exercises or vice versa you know that there's a justification behind this a lot of cases we know we said it before if someone's gives, giving you a cookie cutter approach and everyone's getting exactly the same thing when you see them and every other person is having exactly the same type of treatment that for us is a red flag of healthcare practitioners you know treatment plans whatever that is should be individualized to you you know no one should be given the same adjustment the same manipulation and the same sheet of exercises when they walk into the door whether they've got you know 10 years of back pain sciatica or two days of back pain there should be a little bit of give and take between these uh or a little bit of there should be a lot of leeway here and some individualization when it comes to a uh, comes to treatment plan absolutely and and one of the things that we keep coming across now is if you want to talk about scans, or if you think a scan might be appropriate, if you want to talk about hands-on versus hands-off, if you want to talk to your practitioner about the person last time did this, are you going to do that? That's okay. We won't be offended if anything. Look, we've just done a forty-minute chat <coughs> randomly about um, uh, about how we would treat these things. Your practitioner will likely quite enjoy explaining their reasoning behind it, and that's one of the biggest things for me. You know, when you get these conflicting. Um, information points sometimes you think well which one do i listen to as long mm. as there's good solid clinical reasoning behind it there are still some differences in um uh in a, well, some differences in opinion as long as they're aligned with things like the nice guidelines for uh, for back pain so if you look up nice guidelines for acute low back pain as rob mentioned earlier um then as long as there's good clinical reasoning behind it i'd say it's pretty safe to, to follow that guidance yeah 
bang on. So I think that's a, a, a pretty decent episode there explaining all of the things that we we kind of covered today. As a reminder, if anyone is struggling with back pain, we all do offer virtual consultations and that can just be a chat. It can be a second opinion. It can be interpretation of some x-ray, uh, some, uh, some x-ray or some imaging scans or some MRI scans. You know, we do a lot of, as I said, this kind of second opinion type work, which is sometimes people just want to have a bit of a chat over their symptoms and help formulate a plan. We can point in the direction of other local experts as well. Um, if you're looking for someone to, you know, give you a bit more um, a, a bit more guidance as well. Um, so Dave and I are more than happy to do that. We'll pop a link to the show notes um, with our with our diaries as well. But below, if you'd like to have a chat with us with a on a, on a Zoom or a virtual appointment, I know most people are bored of Zoom after two years of COVID, but uh, that's that's what we're here for. So thank you so much for for listening to this episode. This has been episode one hundred and seven. Big thanks to everyone who is who's listening to the podcast. We still love doing it, and we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Over and out. Thank you, guys.